Afrika amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, U.S. faces opposition on tackling sexual abuse by U.N. troops and South Africa's Deputy President says business policy needs to be continued improved. In economics, South Africa's Trade Minister says a GOA Act will create more than 60,000 jobs. And in sports news, Cameroon announces squad to face South Africa in Afghan qualifier. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussan. Global human rights watchdog Amnesty International has accused South Sudan's military forces of suffocating 60 men and boys in a shipping container. In a report, the London-based organization called for the perpetrators to be prosecuted. Amnesty International says that in October last year, government soldiers rounded up more than 60 men and boys in Lihe, in a town in the northern Unity State, and locked them in a shipping container on the grounds of a Catholic church. The government has denied the killings. Congo's government has called on international partners to demonstrate positive cooperation days after the European Union expressed concern over harassment of government opponents. Government spokesperson Lambad Mende has denied accusations that the rights of DRC citizens are not being observed. He says the correct judicial systems are in place. The EU has said respect for human rights is crucial for transparent elections. DRC is slated to hold elections in November. Chairperson of the African Union Commission and the Secretary-General of the United Nations have condemned Wednesday's attack on the African Union-United Nations hybrid operation in Darfur. A South African peacekeeper attached to the mission was killed while a second SNDF soldier was wounded. The statement from both Dr. Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma and Ban Ki-moon indicates the attack was carried out by an unknown armed group. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric. The attack took place about 40 kilometers southwest of Kutum in North Darfur while the peacekeepers on patrol were traveling from Kutum to Jarido. The chairperson and the secretary general expressed their sincere condolences to the family of the fallen peacekeepers and the government of the Republic of South Africa. They wish the wounded a speedy recovery. The chairperson and the secretary general call on all the parties to the conflict in Darfur to respect the integrity of the United Nations peacekeeping force. They urged the Sudanese authorities to investigate the attack promptly and to bring the perpetrators to justice. South Africa's Justice Minister Michael Masuta says the decision of the High Court in Pretoria to release the killer of SACP leader Chris Hani on parole contradicts what he terms his department's new policy thrust. Yesterday, the court ruled that the Justice and Correctional Service Department should have released 
should release Yanus Walush in two weeks' time. The department says it's likely to appeal the court's decision. But his co-conspirator Clive W. Lewis was released on medical parole 10 months ago. Masuta explains his department's new policy thrust that the court ruling contradicts. It flies in the face of our new policy thrust, which is to restore the place of the victim uh, right at the center of the criminal justice system. We still have to study the decision and, and get to grips with the reasons uh, of the judge in this case. But uh, my gut feeling at this point in time is that we're likely to appeal this decision. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says the criminal justice system should play an important role in ending the killing of people with albinism. This is in reaction to the recent number to the recent murder of a 20-year-old in KwaZulu-Natal province. Some traditional healers have been accused of using body parts of people with albinism for muti. The killing of people with albinism is a serious problem in Tanzania. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma addressed the Disability Rights Conference in Pretoria and said he was worried that the lives of people with albinism were in danger. We need to spread the message that people with albinism have rights like any other South African. They must be treated with respect and dignity. They are also entitled to full protection by the law and by our law enforcement agencies. Our communities should also provide protection and participate in awareness campaigns about albinism. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it's 806 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, a United States draft resolution to tackle the escalating problem of sexual abuse by peacekeepers appears to have hit some headwinds in the council, with some countries believing the issue should be handled by the General Assembly. The comments came during a Security Council briefing by the UN Secretary General on his recommendations for tackling the scourge that saw 69 sexual abuse allegations against U.S. personnel in peacekeeping missions last year alone with the majority in the Central African Republic and the DRC. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. It's about greater accountability within the U.N. system, with the U.N. Chief Ban Ki-moon again urging troop-contributing countries to act against allegations more swiftly. Accountability demands the conduct of solid investigation that can withstand a judicial scrutiny in disciplinary and criminal proceedings. This will require developing uniformly high standards of investigation. It entails building the capacities of immediate response teams to gather and preserve evidence. All investigations should be con- concluded within six months at most. Russia wants any council resolution to extend to peacekeeping troops that serve outside the auspices of the UN but that get Security Council approval for deployment. 
fellow council member Egypt has objected to the question of troop misconduct being taken up by the council, with Ambassador Abdelatif Abulata warning against using it as a tool to attack troop contributing countries. Egypt considers that cases of sexual abuse and exploitation should not be used as a tool to attack uh, troop contributing countries or, or to uh, undermine their reputation or uh, undermine the the, uh, the significant uh, sacrifice that they are, are undertaking. Uh, we're talking about uh, several dozen cases, uh, just a f handful of cases uh, uh, considering the hundreds of thousands of troops pro provided. Furthermore, these cases are not representative of the countries uh, providing troops. This argument hit a nerve with the United States Ambassador Samantha Power, who is pushing for the draft resolution to back the Secretary General's recommendations. It is this council that sends peacekeepers into conflict areas because we believe their presence is essential to promoting international peace and security. We deem it our responsibility as a council to oversee every part of their missions, how many soldiers and police to send, what their mandate is, when they can use force, and we give them clear mandates to protect civilians. So let me pose the question this way to the skeptics. When governments attack civilians, it is our job. When armed groups, non-state actors, attack civilians, it is our job. When terrorists attack civilians, it is our job. So why in the world, when the UN's own peacekeepers are the ones attacking civilians, when peacekeepers commit the sickening crime of raping children, is it someone else's job? Explain that. Why is that the exception? The latest draft resolution supports the Secretary-General's decision to repatriate military and police units where credible evidence of abuse is found, while replacing contingents where allegations are not properly investigated by those countries responsible. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. The United Nations Human Rights Council has offered extensive recommendations on how to best manage public gatherings in its member states. Two independent human rights experts presented the recommendations to the Council yesterday in Geneva, Switzerland. Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial summary and arbitrary executions for the organization, Christoph Haynes, says a systematic management of assemblies can prevent an escalation of violent outbreaks. Haynes elaborates. Yes, it's been a process for about two years, and we had regional um, meetings. Um, there was one meeting in uh, in Latin America and Chile. There was one in South Africa for Africa and the, and the MENA region. Um, there was one in Turkey for Asia, and then one in Geneva for for Europe. Um, so we we engaged with states. Uh, all states were invited to make submissions, and we also in Geneva um, and in, in, in these other regional meetings met with states and with civil society. So it was a very extensive process. Can you please tell us what are these recommendations, how they operate? There are 10 recommendations. Um, it comes uh, to sort of 10 broad principles. And then for each one of them, there are practical recommendations of how to implement them. So we set out the nature of the right to um, participate in peaceful assemblies and we emphasize why it can play a positive role in society. We um, say that states have a duty to facilitate the exercise of the right to peaceful assembly. 
full shall only be used um, if it's uh, necessary and proportionate. The collection of personal information in relation to a demonstration must not be interfered with, and people have the right of access to information. So we set out these broad principles, and then we say how the state should actually implement it. In most African countries, protests turn ugly because of the way people behave. Uh, because people from different countries behave differently. Some people are saying that uh, the authority, sometimes they take longer to address them. In this recommended report, can you explain to us how will this work? Well, what we emphasize is that, that there's normally a notification system so that if people are involved in demonstrations, this is now except for small demonstrations or spontaneous demonstrations, but if they're going to organize a large demonstration, they, they must notify the authorities um, they should not be required to ask permission to do it, but they must notify the authorities so that the authorities have the time to facilitate the process. So, for example, if they're going to use a street, say the main street of the, of the town, uh, and they're going to have hundreds of people who are going to walk down the street and disrupt traffic, um, they must notify the authorities in advance so that the authorities can see how they manage this. Can they then let the people use another road or something like that? And, th- and that's what we then uh, emphasize. There must be authority in the state as a contact point, because we think that often people get uh, um, triggered by something, there's an event, and then they react to it, and then the system is not in place to, to, to make sure that this is properly managed from the side of the, of the state as well. How best can these recommendations be implemented in violent states? Yes, I think it's, it, it is it's relevant in, in, in peaceful but also in violent situations. Um, I was in Burundi, for example, last week, and in that particular case, they have very little in terms of less lethal weapons, you know, the use of tear gas or the use of a water cannon or something like that. So if there's a demonstration there, the police essentially have their firearms. And uh, it's much better if they have, in addition to firearms, they have other tools that they can use. They must be trained on how to use tasers or tear gas, those things as well, because they have much less lethal consequences. So, so I think that's an important uh, um, part of the capacity of, of the law enforcement in countries where it's potentially that it will get violent. Because the problem is if it gets violent, the protest gets violent, and then the police suppresses it with violence, then often the protesters respond with even more violence, and the whole thing escalates. So for the police to have less lethal weapons, it's also important for the police to have, for example, to reflect the population. You know, if there are only men in the police force, it may look very repressive. But if there are men and women in the police force, and if the society is composed of people from different backgrounds, if those people are also in the police force, then it's much easier to de-escalate the whole situation. What sort of measures do you have in place for countries that uh, respond with live ammunition during protest? I think the international law is very clear on that. You cannot use live ammunition simply to disperse an assembly. You can use firearms if there's a threat to life or serious bodily injury, then you can use firearms. But firearms can never be used simply to disperse an assembly. If if one has to disperse an assembly, you need to use less lethal arms. That was Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary and Arbitrary for the United Nations Human Rights Council, Christoph Haynes, on the line speaking to Vusin Kosi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Now let's go back in time to today in the year 2010, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake 
resulting in a tsunami, struck Japan's northeastern coast, killing nearly 20 thousand people and severely damaging the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. And that was Today in History in the year 2010. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's finance minister, Pravin Gordon, won applause from an impromptu London roadshow this week, but left many global investors skeptical he could defend his country's investment grade rating. Gordon is trying to woo back UK and US-based investors and repair the damage from the 9th to the 12th, the December day when President Jacob Zuma suddenly switched finance ministers. Sean Barspies reports. New York is the final stop in his three-city investor roadshow that has also taken his delegation to Boston and London. Minister Gordon projecting an air of confidence that the country can successfully push through the current headwinds. Discussions are tough. Uh, many of, of the people who are invested in our bonds and uh, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange uh, are there, have been there for many years. They know South Africa very well and they're asking tough questions, as I said. Can we sustain the fiscal framework? How are you going to get growth in your economy? When will you show us concrete things that you are doing? Are you going to be able to change some of the uh, state-owned companies to be more efficient and self-sustainable uh, on a financial basis? Uh, is your politics going to stabilize after the events in December? So those are frank questions that they've asked. Characterizing the deliberations as excellent, we asked if his message of fiscal consolidation, cutting expenditure with greater acceleration in infrastructure and energy investment was allaying international fears about the need for inclusive growth. The message is resonating, but what they want is concrete proof that we're doing something to move in the direction. In other words, I think even in South Africa, we don't want to hear about more plans and more policies. What we want to hear is things are actually being done. And in our conversations back home, we are identifying many short-term projects to demonstrate both to ourselves and to our partners around the world that we are moving in a different uh, and better direction, which will begin to bear fruit over the next year or so. Minister Gordon also addressed the upcoming Moody's ratings review and a possible downgrade. It was slightly unexpected, but remember that uh, Moody's has us two notches above sub-investment grade, so they will have a bit of space if you like. Uh, what the review is about, however, is that they will come to South Africa, they will meet government, they will meet trade unions, they will meet business, they will meet academics and others in order to collect enough information to decide whether they should leave us where we are or whether they should downgrade us by one or two notches depending on their assessment. So this is an opportunity for South Africa to actually demonstrate that we are indeed resilient we do have a story to tell. We've gone through tough times, uh, but we have a plan to get out of it. And on the criticism, particularly from the Democratic Alliance, for missing the debate of his budget speech in Parliament yesterday. I think that's uh, rather unfortunate. I've spoken to Mr. Mania and uh, explained to him that we had to come here now. Uh, and uh, having the Deputy Minister there is, as a representative of the Ministry is... Uh, a voice right there in Parliament to explain what government's intent is. And there are times when we'll have to split our responsibilities 
and look after our national interests. And I think he understands that despite the slight political games he's been playing. He will spend the next two days in New York before returning to South Africa at the weekend. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DFTV's audio bouquet channel 902. Now South Africa's Deputy President Sol Ramaphosa says business policy needs to be continuously improved to ensure that small businesses are supported. He says they are the backbone of the economy and must play a critical role in the procurement space of government to enable them to grow and be self-reliant. Ramaphosa was speaking at the South African Business Incubation Conference hosted by the Department of Small Business Development in Midrand, north of Johannesburg. Business incubation has been identified by a government as an important tool to support small businesses whilst boosting the economy. Murafa Tabane has more. The conference was attended by delegates from different provinces as well as neighboring countries. Held under the theme incubation as a vehicle for economic prosperity, it touched on issues relating to incubation funding models as well as international best practices. The Minister of Small Business Development, Lindiwe Zulu, says business incubation is in line with the objectives of the National Development Plan. The plan has identified the support of small business development as critical in creating the millions of jobs the country needs. Even when things are very difficult from an economic and financial point of view, innovation continues to happen, creativity continues to happen. Small and medium enterprises will always try and be as creative as they possibly can. But here we are talking about incubation. We are talking about assistance being given to small and medium enterprises through ensuring that one, they are innovative enough to produce products that can be bought through uh, market access, and the market access, by the way, is not only from a, a national point of view, it's also from an international point of view. The main speaker at the conference was Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, who highlighted that the work that is being done by the Department of Small Business Development is progressive as incubation ensures that small businesses are supported and harnessed. We need a new model for business incubation, one that is based on strategic government intervention, which is what Minister Zulu is doing now. Coordination as well as redistribution. It is a model that must also incorporate the achievements, the resources and capabilities of the private sector as well as non-governmental agencies or organizations involvement in as far as business incubation is concerned. Ramaphosa also acknowledged the role played by small businesses in the economy. It is through small business that we really, truly and honestly want to radically change the trajectory of our economy. We place the hopes of our nation on a thriving, inclusive economy on the success of small business. Now, if you are in the small business sector and ever thought that what you are doing in your little corner, in your garage, does not matter, I am here to tell you that it does matter to this economy. 
Meanwhile, Lindiwezulu's department says it will put on the national agenda the significance and importance of incubation to support businesses in the country. The conference continues today. I'm Morafi Tabani in Johannesburg. The 7th IT Leaders Africa Summit takes place at Vodacom World near Johannesburg, South Africa from the 15th to the 16th of March. The event is more than just another conference. It is led by some of today's key individuals who are shaping the IT landscape. Leaders in the industry have been consulted to tailor an agenda that is both current and topical. So if you cannot make it to the summit, then don't you worry. Channel Africa will be there, so listen to us as we broadcast live from the 7th IT Leader Summit, taking place on the 15th and 16th of March. You can catch us on the shortwave on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band or on the DSTV channel 902, as well as on the internet channelafrica.org. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, angry members of the Disabled People South Africa have threatened to disrupt the three-day national summit of people with disabilities if President Jacob Zuma does not review his decision to place the disability unit under the Department of Social Development. Hosted by the Social Development Department, the gathering currently underway in Irene, south of Pretoria, says to strengthen consensus and prepare of the implementation and adoption of a white paper on the rights of persons living with disabilities. Tsepwe Kaneng has more. Pandemonium broke out when a group of protesters wanted to force their way into the hall where President Jacob Zuma was delivering a keynote address. Leaders of the group are accusing Social Development Minister Batabile Zamini of not doing enough to address their plight and want the disability unit to be relocated back to the office of the presidency. President Zuma moved the unit to social development when he decided to do away with the Department of Women, Children and People with Disabilities after the 2014 elections. Security was beefed up as the angry crowd demanded to present their demands to President Zuma. He was forced to deviate from a prepared speech to defend his decision. I just thought I should underline that point because I've heard that even outside here there are people who are still protesting. At the right time, we'll have time to talk to them, to explain. From the presidency, we must supervise and monitor and evaluate what departments are doing. And the social development, we will include this when we evaluate. How far have they gone? Otherwise, in the presidency, it would be nice to be there, but very little will happen. So that's why we took the decision, and I would like to just make this point so that we are clear about why the decision was taken. It was not relegating the status. It was putting the sector at a department that must be given the capacity, the resources, the personality to ensure that work proceeds. 
despite President Zuma's pledge to meet and address concerns of members of the disabled people of South Africa, the organization's leaders have vowed to disrupt the National Disability Rights Summit until the President accedes to their demands. Tandi Wemfulo is Deputy Secretary General of Disabled People South Africa. We are saying disability is not a welfare issue. Disability is a human rights issue. We protested from 2014. It's only now the president, after two years, comes and addresses us. What are we saying? It means he doesn't care. We are saying to the president, number one, he must come and address us, talk to us. Number two, we want to know when is the disability also going to be in the presidency. If the disability is not in, in the presidency, there's no summit today or tomorrow. We will make sure there's no summit. Meanwhile, President Zuma says the criminal justice system should play a key role in strengthening the fight to end albino killings. This is in reaction to the recent brutal murder of a 20-year-old Tandazi Lempunza, whose dismembered body was found in Manguzi in KwaZulu-Natal. Some traditional healers have been accused of using albino's body parts for muti and as charms for good luck. President Zuma says there's an urgent need to eradicate stereotypes and superstitions that places the lives of people with albinism in danger. We need to spread the message that people with albinism have rights like any other South African. They must be treated with respect and dignity. They are also entitled to full protection by the law and by our law enforcement agencies, our communities should also provide protection and participate in awareness campaigns about albinism. He also committed government to improving the living conditions of people with disabilities. Wheelchair-bound Simon Manganye says they need improved access to education, employment and economic opportunities. In terms of um you know, employment, employing people with disabilities. Yes, we, we acknowledge that most of our members um, do not have required qualification, but we believe as um, a disability organization that government plays a vital role to ensure that they grant bursaries, learnership, even internships to our people so that they can uh, secure employment. Because, for an example, um, myself as Simon Mangani, if I'm going to, um, let's say I'm going to fly to Devon, I will need somebody to fly with me. So I'm paying double instead of paying for myself because of my disability. And also the issue of, um, I think they will try and address it, the issue of accommodation, housing for people with disabilities. We, our members are still suffering. They are not accommodated. President Zuma has convened the inaugural meeting of the Presidential Disability Working Group which will coordinate efforts to respond to the plight of people living with disabilities. Tsepo Ikaneng in Pretoria. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, global human rights watchdog Amnesty International has accused South Sudan military forces of suffocating 60 men and boys in a shipping container. Tunisian forces have raided a southeastern town close to the country's border with Libya, killing three militants and detaining another. And Congo's government has called on international partners to demonstrate positive cooperation 
Days after the European Union expressed concern over harassment of government opponents. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And political parties in South Africa have widely condemned the release of on parole of the murderer of SACP and ANC struggle stalwart Chris Hani. Janus Walus was sentenced to death for the 1993 assassination of the much-loved and popular Hani, but it was later commuted to life. He was sentenced with his accomplice Clive Darby Lewis, who was released on medical parole last year. Some political parties are calling for his immediate deportation, while others say it's time to review the whole parole system. Amos Pajo has more. What irritates me is the judge, at no point did she refer to my husband's murder. To her, there was no murder. All she has to consider is about Walu's parole without history. To her, Walu's is in prison unfairly. For that really irritated me because Wallace is there because he made at my husband in cold blood, not in a bar, not on the street, not in a farm. An irate Dimpohani, she has vowed to appeal the ruling. The SACP has described Waluz, who pulled the trigger on its general secretary, as an unrepentant murderer who does not deserve parole. It slammed the judge as bias. The party says it takes exception to Judge Jansen van Nieuwenhuizen's remarks that it was time to forget and move on and that the murderer must be treated with compassion. Deputy General Secretary Solima Paila. We believe that the law was biased towards favoring an unrepentant uh, perpetrator of a heinous crime like the murder of our General Secretary Comrade Krizani. And the, uh, the feelings of the family were not considered. In fact, the judge had uh, predetermined uh, her views in this regard by actually calling on the family to move on uh, in this case. While the SACP says it will challenge the court ruling, the governing ANC called for a loose immediate deportation upon release. Spokesperson Zizukwadra says even the timing of the court's decision is unfortunate. The imminent release of the murderer of Christiani, Janus Walus, is a travesty of justice. It's insensitive to an extent that just a month before we commemorate the assassination of Christiani, his murderer is released on parole. Our demand is that, among others, on his release, he must be deported to the country of his origin and never come back to South Africa. The ruling returned focus on the parole system. The DA says it will ask for legal clarity on whether all processes and protocols were followed by the court and the parole board before the parole was granted. It agreed with COPE that parole is not a right but a privilege. COPE says the system must be reviewed. Spokesperson Dennis Bloom. We, as the Congress of the People, we are going to talk to the other political parties in Parliament so that we must bring an amendment to the, to the act in Parliament to change this parole system because we want to make it tougher. Life is life. When we are saying a person was sentenced to life, we must implement life. He must not be granted any parole. The PAC has drawn comparison with the long legal battle for its member Kenny Mutsamai to be granted parole and the strict conditions imposed, spokesperson Apapowe. 
you will recall that the similar application was made by one of our freedom fighters, Kenny Zaman, and the same court rejected the, the application. Now, as matters stand, he is now being released, and the conditions are not even clearly spelled out. And considering the fact that he is a foreigner, even if there were to be conditions, those conditions will not be applicable. Whereas our own freedom fighters, they are being uh, subjected to very inhuman conditions when they are about to be released. Hanu was shot and killed in front of his home in Boxback in 1993, three years after returning from exile. The murder of the Umkondo Wesizo commander risked the country going into civil war, and it took massive efforts led by President Nelson Mandela to calm the nation. His death was felt in Lesotho, where he fled to in 1963. Principal Chief Khwabani Teko, in charge of the area in Maseru, where Hani had built his home, says he believes Walus should be kept in jail until he dies. Teko says he robbed both Lesotho and South Africa of a leader who was loved. Like he's not, you know, being sought after by the apartheid because he was a, a man of the people. He was the man who would die for South Africa and Lesotho and, and, and the same breath. So Kimutu, he is a person that we really love because of his personality. The, the way he was outgoing, liked everybody, talking to the poor and all. He was a real leader that we would like, we would cherish even today. The Department of Justice says it will study the judgment before deciding whether to appeal it. I'm Amos Powell in Johannesburg. South Africans are urged to forgive each other and not bear any grudges. This emerged at the master class session given by Credo Mutua, the man many regard as a custodian of the African culture. He was speaking at a project launch in Kuruman in the country's northern Cape province aimed at exploring ancient African traditions and culture. Mutua says it's important for everyone to learn to respect one another. Mpolibedi reports. Credo Mutua sang thanksgiving songs and praised his ancestors as he made a public appearance during his master class. After many years of disappearing from the public eye, Mutua, who is in his 90s, uses a walking stick and is frail. His name Credo means I believe and Mutua means little bush man. A South African traditional healer and an author, he has been credited for correctly predicting historic events. This include the destruction of New York's World Trade Center in 2001, the 1976 youth uprising and the ousting of President Tabombeki. Mutua is now 93 and living in Kuruman in the Northern Cape addressed the public through a platform created by the Department of Arts and Culture. The department created a platform for him to come and deliver Legends class lecture, the focus being on exploring the African-Asian methods and indigenous knowledge system of African storytelling. During the lecture, Mutua urged Africans to unite through forgiveness. We should forgive each other. We should stop bearing grudges. That gain us no reward. And I have just one thing to say. One thing that has nearly made me mad. Because any man who has got a head like mine gets crazy very soon. The children of the Mutua family should ask themselves, what do you think you are doing? 
when you refuse to talk to your father. The youth were also encouraged to learn more about their heritage. Author and former CEO of Freedom Park, Wali Mungwanisirote, has urged South Africans to preserve and safeguard their culture. You know, I do not know how many times when I sit with a, a Credo Motor, he'll say, what is it that we should do so that black people know the deep knowledge that they have and the wisdoms that they have? This is the question of the 21st century now. And when I say black people, I mean, I mean the colored people, I mean the Indians of this country. Those in attendance were impressed with the lecture. He talks about things that are never discussed in our communities. Everything that people are talking about, they speak about Western things. But nobody speaks about us as Africans, where we come from, where we're supposed to be, what our future holds. And knowing him made me see things from a different perspective. Communities who attended the lecture were grateful for the master class by Credo Mutua and hailed him as a traditional legend of our time. I'm Polybedi in Kimberley. In heaven they are. The International Telecommunication Union is continuing to work with administrations, network operators, equipment manufacturers and national and regional standardization organizations to include today's 5G research and development activities in the International Mobile Telecommunication 2020. Sergio Buonomo, study group counselor, says the 5G research development activities in the International Mobile Telecommunication 2020 is the global standard for mobile broadband communications. The future steps in 5G mobile technology are aimed at a new paradigm of connectivity among people and things in a smart networked environment encompassing big data, applications, transport systems and urban centers. The video sector of the International Telecommunication Union deals with all activities relating to radio transmissions. So we have, among our activities, we have six study groups, which are committees of people coming from all over the world, basically from member states, from industries, from other international organizations, and they get together and on a specific subject. In particular, with respect to the activities on mobile, we have what is called study group five. And in this study group five, we have the activities on international mobile telecommunications. Now, this international mobile telecommunication is a group who deals with the standardization of the mobile communications. Now, mobile communications started a long time back. In particular, in ITU, we have started activities on what was called the 2G, 3G, and 4G systems. Nowadays, we are now talking about the future, so we are talking about fifth-generation systems. In ITU, we do not have a sort of a definition of this three, fourth-generation, fifth-generation. We talk about IMT, which means International Mobile Telecommunication. So we, in general, we work on this subject. Of course, the subject of the future now is what we call the IMT for 2020. So in year 2020, we expect 
that all administrations, all sector members, all industries will put into work a new standard of communications, which will be called the 5G. I mean, it will be associated to 5G. So this group has met, keeps meeting on a, let's say, on about three months basis, every three months, three, four months around the world. And all partners discuss about the standardization of these uh, signals. Now, Mr. Sejo, talking about the standardization of some of the signals, now looking at 5G, how many countries would you say are now on this level of 5G as compared to other countries who are still coming from 3G? Yeah. Well, I can tell you one thing. Already what is currently the most it's the advanced communication system is what is named 4G. It's available in about 10, 15 countries around the world. The same service is not available in everywhere. So we have in some countries still operations of 3G systems. And in about 10, 15 of them, we have what is called 4G. Now, we expect that 5G will be implemented in 2020, so it's from five years from now. And we don't know how many countries will reach the capacity, the capability of putting into place networks supporting that kind of communications. It's really depend on the development of each country, because you need the infrastructure to have such system in place. Now, Mr. Sejo, I'm asking this question because people like myself, as a journalist, we find that I have to go to a country that uses 4G or 5G. So now the equipment that I'll be having, like laptops and the likes, would they be compatible for me to be able to file the stories that I need to send to my respective workplace as a journalist? Yes, in a way, yes, because... uh, At this moment, what is available almost everywhere in the world is a 3G system. Then uh, in few countries, your system will still work, nevertheless may not profit of the full capabilities of an advanced network like a fourth generation network. So in the future, you may need to upgrade your devices in order to profit of all the possibility of this fifth generation. This fifth generation is not only communication between uh, telephones, but also between uh, telephones and uh, other devices which can be on cars, for instance. So you may have interactions between mobile phones and cars or other systems. So this fifth generation, which is foreseen for the future, it allows you additional device to be together into a single network. So you can have your device, current device, still working, but it will be able to communicate only to what is able to do already nowadays. If you want to profit of the new features of the future systems, of course you have to upgrade your device. So how far has the research gone with regards to 5G to be able to meet the IMT 2020 mobile systems? Yeah, at this moment, we started about one and a half year ago. At this moment, we are in the phase where we have requested all the industries 
to get together and define what are the major parameters in order to generate specifications that at the end will be used to say, okay, this system is qualified to be working as a network in 2020 as a 5G system. That was Sergio Buonomo, study group councillor for the International Telecommunication Union on the line from Geneva, Switzerland, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davies says the African Growth and Opportunity Act agreement between South Africa and America will create more than 60,000 jobs. He was responding to a parliamentary written question. The agreements allow South Africa to export vehicles and pots, ferrochrome manganese, manganese flake, oranges, mandarins, chemicals, wines and raisins to the U.S., But Davis admits that the country will also share at least 5,000 jobs in the poultry industry due to imports. Meanwhile, the country's trade and industry deputy minister, Mzondile Masina, says government and academics need to work together to formulate policies to address poverty, unemployment and inequality. He was speaking in East London at an economic research advisory network that Masina's department hosted in partnership with the Eastern Cape Province Department of Economic Development, Environmental Affairs and Tourism. Masina says that they want to come up with policies which will improve the economy. We want a solution that is going to respond on how we solve the triple challenges of poverty, unemployment and, and inequality that continues to persist. So all these people that are seated here uh, are basically will be sitting uh, for the first time without just criticizing, saying what's wrong with government, but they will be saying what is it that we can do together to make sure that government policymakers are able to make a meaningful con- uh, contribution. South Africa's Deputy President, Cyril Ramaphosa, says government should create a conducive environment in which small businesses can grow and become self-reliant. He was speaking at the South African Business Incubation Conference, which the Small Business Development Department hosted in Midrand yesterday. Ramaphosa has stressed the importance of small businesses, saying they are the backbone of the economy. It is through small business that we really, truly, and honestly want to radically change the trajectory of our economy. We place the hopes of our nation on a thriving, inclusive economy, on the success of small business. Now, if you are in the small business sector and ever thought that what you are doing in your little corner, in your garage, does not matter, I am here to tell you that it does matter to this economy. Zambia's Aksakatsum financial services employees say they are not sure if their overdue terminal benefits will be paid following seizure of property by bailiffs on Monday. Bailiffs pounced on Satam's Cairo Road branch in Lusaka on Monday and seized the goods, including company vehicles, in response to the company's indebtedness. According to Bank of Zambia, Satam, 
became insolvent on June 30, 2015, as its financial position deteriorated severely on account of continued losses. Zimbabwe's Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa says that the country needs an annual growth rate of up to 8% over the next 10 to 15 years to revamp its economy. On Wednesday, Chinamasa said President Robert Mugabe had agreed to major reforms. Chinamasa says that new loans from international lenders will only come if the drought-stricken Southern African nation showed the capacity to introduce a raft of economic reforms. The US dollar trades at 15.24 in South Africa, 11.98 in Botswana, 11.32 in Zambia. 7.0 British pound, 9.0 euro. Gold, $1,270, platinum $979 an ounce, brand crude $40.88 a barrel. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Tami Kluza. Tami, a bumper sporting weekend. You see now we're looking at the match that is currently now taking on in the Super Rugby, mm. uh, the Brumbies. Mm. And we hope that by the weekend everything will be fine. But apart from that... Uh, it's Kaiser Chiefs and... Uh, um, Asset of Ivory Coast. Yes. Come up this weekend. Mm. We are hoping that everything will be fine. And uh, Bafana Bafana against Cameroon. The announcement yesterday, <laughs> but there's a great reaction on that one, eh? Oh, okay, let's. Uh, you'll keep us updated. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Let's start with football, where South Africa's Bafana head coach Ephraim Sheikh Mashaba has named a 25-man squad that will take on Cameroon in a crucial back-to-back 2017 Gabon Afghan qualifiers. South Africa and the indomitable Lions first meet on Saturday, 26th of March, at the study Omnisport Delimbe in Limbe in Cameroon. Bafana coach Ephraim Sheikh Mashaba says that they know the significance of both matches and have no choice but to win them if South Africa is to stand a realistic chance of qualifying for the 2017 Gabon Afcon finals. We have selected a team that will represent us well. And one, one, one thing I want to highlight, I'm not going to be soft on this. This coming game, it's a must win. It is a must win. If you look at the log, it tells us, dictates to us that we've got to go and win home and away. That will change things. But even then, even if we don't win one, draw one or lose one, it's, we still have a chance. We're not that bad that we can't even get the second best qualifier. It's within our reach. Still in football, ice Cape Town striker Prince Ngumalo was called up by Bafana coach Sheikh Mashaba for a crucial Africa Cup of Nations qualifier against Cameroon at the end of the month. And Ngumalo says that he's very happy to be back in condition. He says that he hopes it will be easy to fit into the squad as he knows a lot of players, including Ike's teammate Rivaldo Kutsiam. In cricket, Zimbabwe beat Scotland by 11 runs. 
to register their second consecutive win in the ICC World T20 qualifiers in Nagpur on Thursday afternoon. While chasing a challenging total of 147, Scotland managed to score 136 as they were bowled out with two more balls left in the first innings. Earlier, Zimbabwe had won the toss and decided to bet first. Sean Williams' quick fire 53 of 36 balls helped Zimbabwe put up a respectable total on the board. Highlighter of the match was certainly Williams' outstanding knock. Zimbabwe now have four points in the bag with two consecutive wins. And finally, Inform South African Betty Strauss says that everyone has a chance to win the NetBank Investor Cup regardless of point log standings. Strauss fired a flawless round of three under 69 par to lead by one on the first day of the Investor Cup final that was played in Northwest. And Strauss admits that she will miss the vibe and the nerves that come with the NetBank Cup and uh, as the 2015 and 2016 Sunshine Ladies Tour season comes to an end on Saturday. I wish there were more. I told told many of my friends that uh, I thought, like, I mean, it will be so good after this, there will be like another chase or something, you know, give someone else a go. A go and they practice hard and, you know, just came. It's just so nice to have more events than last year. But to year. also play at this level. So nice. It's just I can learn so much, and at the meantime, it, and I can also play good, and I can some cash, and um, it just, it's just I know where I'm going. I play with Bertine. I mean, she's in LPGA level. Um, she's very solid. Um, the one thing good about her is, I mean, she hits the ball far, but she it doesn't matter what it is. She just sticks to her game plan. Like really, she just focus on game, and that's uh, I I realized it today. Um, doesn't mean she just she just plays her own game, um, mm. but it's not that easy to say she's just playing her own game. But she just she just know what she can do and she can't do. You know? And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that's a wrap of Africa, rise and shine for today and for the week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Khomuto Mopulane, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Prince KB with a track titled Wajelwa.